this morning by reminding ourselves of three critical life truths that we saw last week. We call these critical life truths because they are truths that we don't want to forget. We must not forget. This is God's perspective, and this is the way he works. And we need to understand it so that we will be in alignment with God, not out of alignment. Number one, God is always at work in every generation pursuing his mission of redemption and the revelation of of his name. Jesus said, my father is always at work. He is working to this very day. Things did not stop after creation. After resting on the seventh day. Now my father is at work to this very day. And then Jesus said, I too am working. I watch what my Father is doing, and I do what He is doing. Let me ask you, did you watch what God is doing this week? And whatever you did this week, to what extent did it reflect that you saw God doing that very thing? I would dare say that most of us go through our weeks just doing whatever we need to do whatever is on our schedule, or whatever we are inclined to do. Not because we've been watching God, but because that's what's inside of us. Number two, God is always looking for those whose hearts are aligned with Him and whose highest priority is to fulfill His ambitions. The prophet said the eyes of God go back and forth across the earth looking for those who are fully committed to him so that he may show himself strong on their behalf. If God is looking for someone whose highest ambition is to fulfill his ambitions, would he stop and take notice of you? And number three, God is, will always be fully committed to the success of those who are available to Him and who will step out in faith for Him. Always, God will back that person up. We're going today to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2 breaks itself down into a very understandable format. You will see this as we read it. Nehemiah appeals to the king. He makes requests of the king. Journeys back to Judah and inspects the walls. Gives an exhortation to the leaders. Responds to intimidation and then validates his calling to be there and to do the work. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. 
Early in the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, Well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, If it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please, give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plan God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So, though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead expecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. 
Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let us rebuild this wall. So they began the good work. But when Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They asked. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historic claim to Jerusalem. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to understand the truth that you have put in your word for us today. For you say through the apostle that everything that was written in Scripture was written for our endurance and our encouragement. May it instruct our hearts. May it reveal your purposes to us. And may it bring us to the place that we are fully surrendered to you. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The words of verses 16 and 17. The officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now, I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. I've entitled our study today, Complicit or Committed? Do you know what the word complicit means? It means a partner to guilt. You're part of what is wrong. And so the question that I want you to ask yourself today, are you part of the problem or part of the solution. Let's begin thinking about blind eyes and misplaced hearts. It is easy for you and I to live as though the promises of God have no relevance to my daily life. We come to church, and week after week we hear the Word of God, and yet... Let me ask you, how much changed in your life last year in your walk with Christ? How much changed in your work, your commitment, your service, your partnership with Him? It was like that in Jerusalem. When we get to this point, the first group of exiles have been back for 97 years. 
The second group has been back for 13 years. God has been speaking during this time. He has spoken through the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. God has spoken vehemently through the prophet Zechariah. God declared through the prophet Zechariah, I, the Lord, the covenant one, am burning with jealousy for Jerusalem. I am going to make Judah my special possession and Jerusalem the city of my glory. You have no idea, God went on to say, the plans that I have for you. The day is coming when I am going to bring people from every other nation and people will clutch at the robe of a Jew and beg them, please let us go with you because we have heard that God is there. Imagine hearing such prophecies, a promise. A multitude of prophecies have been spoken. Some of them very significant because they speak to the coming of the Messiah. When we get to Palm Sunday, we'll read the verses of Scripture in the Gospels that speak about the entry of Jesus and the Scripture that is fulfilled. It was Zechariah who spoke that Scripture during this time. By the Holy Spirit, he looks far ahead. He sees the end of time. He sees the return of Christ. He sees his feet descending on Mount Sinai and that, or on the Mount of Olives and that mountain split in two at the end of time. They will look upon the one they have pierced and they will mourn. All of these words being spoken during this time. During the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Yeshua, because he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Haggai had rebuked the people. They were taking care of their own homes, but they were neglecting the house of God. The work had started, but then stopped, because everyone was more interested in building their own place than doing the Lord's work. It was through the preaching, Ezra tells us, of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that the people were motivated and encouraged and the work on the temple was finished. And yet, the city remained vulnerable and in disgrace. It had priests, it had officials, it had an administration, it had residents. But no one, no one had the vision to move forward. No one could see beyond their own lives to the purposes of God. Yes, the temple had been restored, but the people were robbing God of the tithe that was supposed to support the ministry in the temple. People had their homes, and they had their families. But in the homes and the marriages, there was no unity. 
there was no oneness. In their worship, God got the leftovers. Not the best of their time, their energy, their focus, their desire. And the astounding thing is, no one saw anything wrong. God had to send the prophet Malachi to address all of these things. And when he brought one up, the people would say, what? How are we doing that? No one could see what was wrong. Day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. Everyone got used to living at a level that was insufficient to fulfill the purposes of God and to bring glory to His name. Think of it. Everyone got used to living at a level that was insufficient to fulfill the purposes of God and bring glory to His name. It is astounding, isn't it? Everyone in Jerusalem had evidently become so used to seeing what should not be that they no longer saw anything that was wrong with it. So used to seeing the mess that they didn't even see what was wrong. So used to seeing the rubble that they didn't even see what was wrong. Well, it's not so different today. We live in a world of such sin, such brokenness. We drive by it every day. You pass areas of the city on your way to church, nonetheless, that are broken. People whose lives are wrecked, we don't even see it. And yet we represent the heart of God. We get so used to seeing what should not be that we no longer see anything wrong with it. It's like that with what we watch and what we listen to. We get so used to looking at what is contradictory to the holiness of God that it no longer affects us, no longer convicts us. We no longer see what's wrong. They had the revealed will of God. They had the prophetic word spoken to them, but nothing changed. Take note of this. They were comfortable and content with a broken representation of the purposes of God. They were comfortable and content with a broken representation of the purposes of God. Are you? Are you comfortable with brokenness around you? Are you comfortable with the sin that is around you? Are you comfortable with lost people around you? Are you content for where you are, where we are, where the church is? 
they had become comfortable, even though God was being misrepresented. Tragically, churches are often a microcosm of Jerusalem, and their congregations a representation of the people in Jerusalem. We get content with a lesser obedience. We get content with a lesser obedience. We get content with giving less than the whole tithe. An issue that God sent Malachi to address. We get comfortable with giving God less than what is holy to Him. We become comfortable with just attending church instead of going out into the streets to compel them to come in so that, as Jesus said, my house may be full. We get comfortable with Sunday after Sunday going by and seeing no one added to the church through evangelism and salvation. We get comfortable with seeing our children not filled with the Holy Spirit. How can that be? Every one of those things is contradictory to the will of God. And yet we become comfortable with a lesser obedience. But understand this, dear friends. A lesser obedience in God's eyes is disobedience. There's no such thing as partway obedience. There's no such thing as, God, I'll do this much of what you say but I reserve the right not to do these commandments. This was the condition at Jerusalem, and let me tell you, dear friends, it's the condition at Moravia Assembly of God. Many of us are comfortable with giving God less than the whole tithe. Comfortable with attending church instead of going out and compelling people to come in so that his house will be full. Content with letting week after week go by and no one coming to know Christ. Well, that's the pastor's responsibility. No. It's all of our responsibilities if we are followers of Jesus Christ. To move his work forward, God had to go 900 miles to a pagan palace to find a man who had kept his eyes on the purposes of God and was willing to risk everything to see God's work go forward. The man Nehemiah. Remember that Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is will also be. Jesus was talking about money. Very explicitly. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. As we saw last week, Nehemiah had wealth 
power and influence, but his heart was not in it. His heart was back in Jerusalem, where the redemptive purposes of God were centered. Where God was building His story. Where God was laying the foundation and preparing the way for the ultimate work that would be done in Jerusalem when His Son came and died on the cross for our sins. Nehemiah had it all, but his heart was not in it. His heart was with God's heart back in Jerusalem. How many of us can live that way? Do live that way? Where is your heart? And what is your treasure? How does the work of God move forward? We have a template for it. There in Nehemiah's story. It is often said, God is not looking for ability. He is looking for availability. God is not looking for ability. He is looking for availability. Understand that. Many times we do not attempt anything for God because we don't think we have the ability. God spoke through Zechariah and said, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit. God just needs availability. He supplies the ability through the Holy Spirit. Samuel was just a child, maybe seven years old, when God first spoke to him and gave him a message to give to Eli the high priest, a very sobering message that Samuel did not want to give to him because it was a prophecy concerning the end for Eli and his family. But at that point, God began to speak through Samuel to all of Israel. Just a child. He would still have been in elementary school. David, a teenager. No one even considered him when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. But God had marked him out as a teenager because I have found in David a man after my own heart. And Mary, as we considered during the season of Advent, a 13-year-old illiterate teenager. And yet, the angel said, I come from the presence of God to say to you, you have found favor in the sight of God. Understand this. God does not need our ability but everything hinges on whether or not we will be available to God. Amen. Nehemiah exhibited a number of characteristics that will enable anyone, even a teenager, to move the work of God forward. Number one, a reliance on prayer a reliance on prayer. 
Why is prayer so important and why does it need to be at the center, the heart of what we do? Why do we, like Nehemiah, need to lay a foundation of prayer? God's work is a spiritual work. And Nehemiah knew that at the root of everything that was wrong were spiritual issues. The people had disobeyed. They had rejected God's ways. And it had resulted in their exile. At the root of everything that was wrong, being in Babylon, being in Persia, and the walls of Jerusalem broken down, at the root of it was sin and disobedience. And that needed to be confessed. And so Nehemiah spent time confessing sin, accepting the guilt, and bringing it before God in confession. Spiritual issues can only be addressed and accomplished in prayer. Nehemiah also knew that he could not initiate anything with the king. This is a fascinating story. The king is very responsive to Nehemiah, right? And yet that wasn't something that Nehemiah could take for granted. Let's think for a few moments about what's in the back history. Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, had a wife named Vashti. And he was having a party. And he sent for her. I want to show off to all the guys my trophy wife. And she said, no, I'm not coming. I'm not your sex object that you can just parade around to all of your buddies. I'm not coming. So what did he do? You're out of here. You're no longer the king, the queen. And he got a new wife. Who was she? Esther. Esther. And then Mordecai came to Esther and said, our people are in trouble and you need to go in and talk to the king. I can't. By Persian law, it is a death penalty if I go to see him without being summoned by him. Nehemiah knew that he could not just approach the king. That the only way to get an audience with the king was for God to do a spiritual work. Nehemiah understood that the heart of the king needed to be brought under the sovereign will of God. Listen, according to Solomon, the king's heart is in the Lord's hands. And when you're dealing with a king, there's only one person who is higher than a king. Nehemiah needed to go to God in order to get the king's heart in a place that was supportive of his request. There came a time when God let him know today is the day. Four months he had been mourning and praying. Four months laying the spiritual foundation. And God said today is the day. 
And for the first time since he heard the news, four months earlier, he allowed his face to be sad in the king's presence. An absolute no-no. You never looked sad before the king. You never infringed upon his happiness. But how did the king respond? With insight and understanding, this can only be sadness of the heart. Why was his heart so favorable? Because for four months, Nehemiah had prayed, God, if this is going to happen, only you can do it. You need to take control of his heart. And there came a day when the Spirit of God whispered in Nehemiah's heart and said, Today is the day. I've accomplished it. You go in there. Let your face reveal where your heart has been with me in prayer. I will give you favor. A reliance on prayer. Secondly, a vision to make a difference. A vision to make a difference. Think about it. Nehemiah was a cupbearer who requested the opportunity to rebuild a city. This man lived inside all of his time. He didn't go outside. He didn't have an architectural background. He wasn't a builder. He wasn't a structural engineer. He spent his time inside serving the king his wine. But he requested that the king let him go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. No indication that he had any experience that would enable him to do so, but he had a dream. He had a dream, and he had a vision. And he had the belief that God could use him to make a difference. Let me ask you this morning, do you have a vision to do anything at all for God? Anything? Parents, are you raising your children to have a vision to do God's work? Are you setting an example of commitment to the kingdom and the work of Christ on earth? Let me remind you this morning that your children will never be any more faithful than you are. You are setting the example. Thirdly, Nehemiah had a belief in the favor of God. Turn on your televisions, look on YouTube, and you will find plenty of preachers talking about the favor of God. Favor of God is so misunderstood. God's favor is rooted in His faithfulness to His promises. And His promises are connected to His purposes. So if you want the favor of God, make sure that your heart and your agenda aligns with the purposes of God, the mission of God. 
God favors those who are surrendered to His will. Someone like Mary. I am the Lord's servant. That was the posture of her heart long before the angel had appeared to her. That's why she found favor in the sight of God. She was surrendered to the Lord's will. Or someone like Noah, who's willing to step out in faith and do the work of God, not knowing how long it's going to take or what kind of opposition and ridicule there is going to be, or how impossible and unbelievable his message is. But he was willing to step out in faith. For 120 years, the Bible says that this preacher of righteousness preached the coming judgment of God when there was no sign at all that what he said would ever happen but he found favor in the sight of God. God will always back up his word, and he will always back up the person who trusts in the faithfulness of God. Amen. Nehemiah also had, an also had a confidence that God would ensure his success. A confidence that God would ensure his success. Two things grow confidence. Prayer and the promises of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Your faith will only grow as you are in the word of God. Your confidence in God will only grow as you are in prayer, as you are in the Word of God. Nehemiah, as we said, prayed for four months. During that time, he was building faith. He was revisiting the promises of God, the covenant promises that God had made, going all the way back to Moses speaking. And he was asserting the will of God over the impossibilities. How was he going to convince the king to let him go? How was he going to convince the king to pay for the project? King, give me letters. Everything was absolutely impossible. But he knew God's purposes for Jerusalem. He knew what God had said going all the way back to Moses and since then. And so he stood on those promises. He prayed them. He trusted God. He had confidence that God would come through for him. And finally... Nehemiah had a refusal to be intimidated by opposition. A refusal to be intimidated by opposition. The adversary will always oppose the work of God going forward. Always. And when he does, you and I have a choice. 
We can either take the easier way and not go forward, or we can engage in spiritual warfare. This is where the people of Israel fail so many times. Do you remember the story that we were looking at a year ago? When the people of Israel came to the border of the promised land, Numbers 13 and 14, Moses sent in ten spies and they came back. Yes, this land is unbelievably wealthy. But there are giants. And if we try to go in, they'll kill us and our children. Wait a minute, said Joshua and Caleb. God promised that he would fight our battles for us. We've seen him do it with the Amalekites. God will go before us. No, said the people. Let's kill Joshua and Caleb and find somebody who will take us back to Egypt where our children will be safe as slaves. This is where we fail so many times. God says, go forward. The enemy says, I'm not letting you go forward. He says, okay. The adversary will always, always, always seek to create fear, doubt, and discouragement. He has a toolbox full of tools that he uses on the heart, the spirit, the mind of the Christian. He will deceive you, distract you, occupy you with anything except the purposes of God. He doesn't care that you claim to be a Christian, that you go to church, as long as you aren't doing anything for Jesus. Perfectly happy. He knows the outcome of it. He knows that when trouble comes, you're going to fall away. Or he knows that when you stand before Jesus Christ, your life will be worthless because you did nothing for the kingdom of God. He doesn't care that you're here to worship the Lord this morning as long as you aren't enabling the work of God to go forward, as long as you aren't pursuing the purposes of God. You are of no threat to him and his kingdom. The adversary hates faith and obedience. Absolutely hates it. That's trusting the Lord. That's aligning yourself with the heart of God. That's having confidence in God. That's taking ownership of God's work and God's purposes. He hates that. Do you want Satan to like you or hate you? We choose that all the time. When we choose not to be obedient, when we choose a lesser obedience, we are choosing Satan's affirmation. Nehemiah refused to be intimidated. What is this? You're going to rebel against the king? They knew he had letters from the king. They knew that he had Persians with him to protect him. 
on that journey. They had watched him travel through the land, but they were trying to intimidate him and still fear in his heart. The same ploy had been used earlier. You can read it in Ezra during the building of the temple. A letter sent. You know these Jews, they're always rebelling. But Nehemiah refused to be intimidated. He knew that God was for him. Who could be against him? He knew that God had his back. He knew that he could count on God to defend him. Psalm 37, verses 5 and 6 say, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Commit your way to the Lord. He will back you up. So let's ask ourselves this morning, Are we complicit in the problem? Are we part of the problem or part of the solution? You know, it's really hard to believe that among all of the priests, the officials, the administrators, the businessmen, which we'll read all about, in the next chapter, and the residents of Jerusalem, that there was not one person with vision to see the disgrace. No one with initiative to take action. No one courageous enough to face the opposition. No one determined to try and make a difference. No one who would even set one block a week, a month, into the wall. Remember the story. Nehemiah tried to do the survey. He couldn't get through all the rubble. But the people had been living with it for 97 years. He had to go down to Kidron Valley and look up in order to survey the work that needed to be done. And yet the people had walked around it, looked past it, and no one had the vision to do anything at all. Friends, let me encourage you. Pray and do something in faith. Pray and do something in faith. And even if it doesn't seem to work out, and even if it doesn't look like much of a success, you have done more than most Christians do. If you and I do nothing, Jesus will say to us, as he did in Matthew 25, why couldn't you have at least done something? Why couldn't you have at least taken my money and put it in the bank so that it earned interest? Instead, you did nothing. It is better to have attempted something for God and have failed than to never have attempted anything at all. 
Friends, I can assure you, God never rewards negligence. And if you and I are not working with the Lord and for the Lord, we are negligent. We are His servants. We are His witnesses. He's entrusted His work to the church, to you, to me. He has made us the hope of the world. He's given us the mission of all nations. And God will not reward us if we do not carry out His mission and do His work. There's no crown waiting for you because you come to church on Sunday morning. The crown is waiting for those who overcome. Those who push the work of God forward. Those who are faithful as servants in the work of God. God never rewards negligence. But He always, always, always honors faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Amen. He always rewards faith. As we continue to go forward into Nehemiah, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah in some very personal ways, ways that apply to us as a church. We're at a critical moment. And we need to decide, are we going to live with a lesser obedience and a broken representation of the purposes of God? Or are we going to say, let's get up and build the work of God? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we acknowledged last week that we have been disobedient to you. That we have not gone into all the world to preach the gospel. That we have not made disciples of all nations. That there's people all around us in the communities where we live and this community where we are the body of Christ and we've never thought about them. We've never gone to them. We've never been your presence and your witness to them. We are disobedient. You would not say to us, well done. You would say to us, how could you live with people going to hell? How could you choose that they don't hear the truth about my son? How could you choose not to do my work? Father, forgive us. For we have been disobedient. 
Forgive us for every way in which we have chosen a lesser obedience. All the ways in which we have said, it's my way, Lord, not your way. It's my money, not your money. It's my life. I don't have time to do this for you. We have become so comfortable here. Not being diligent to bring people to know you. To experience your love. Father, forgive us. So many ways in which you call your body to represent you to the world. And we've been content with a broken representation. We've been content with no one getting saved. We've been content with no outreach. We've been content with not being your presence and your ministry. And yet we call for your blessing and your protection and your grace and your care. Forgive us. Forgive us. Father, I pray that the soil of our hearts will not be worthless soil but it will be good soil. And if our ground is hard, you command us to plow it up. May we not forget what you have said to us this morning, but may we retain your word Put it into practice, as Jesus said, and persevere in it. And so in the name of Jesus, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Oh, God. Father, your word has declared to us that you will stand behind everyone who steps out in faith. And you will honor those who honor you. And you will do the impossible for those whose hearts are fully committed to your purposes. I want to be one of those people. I pray that we will be that kind of a church. Amen. Yes, amen. 
And so by the work of your Holy Spirit, take us there, I pray.